Uh, before I start, I want to show you a video. But before we do the video, um, you know, we had fasting this past week. We did fasting. If you fasted, you know you fasted, don't you? I mean, that just kind of leaves an imprint upon you. It's something that you don't forget too easily. I've had lots of responses from people, emails and phone calls, and people coming up to talk to me, talking about things that had happened that they put on their list they were fasting for. If anything happened for you, we really want to do another recording because when God answers prayer, the only appropriate response is to say thank you. And one of the ways that we can say thank you is actually to record it like we did last week and so other people can hear. If you're willing to do that, if you're comfortable doing that, you can email me. It's john at trygrace.org. It's also at the bottom of your bulletin on that left-hand side's page. But just let me know because we're going to videotape two weeks from today, March the 27th, and we'd love to hear from you because it's really encouraging and it's a faith builder for, uh, for many of us to hear about what's happened in your life. Okay, watch the screen. We want to show you something quick. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that sentiment is carpe diem. Now, who knows what that means? Carpe diem. That seized the day. Very good, Mr. Meeks. Meeks. Another unusual name. Seize the day. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Why does the writer use these lines? Because he's in a hurry. No. Ding! Thanks for playing anyway. Because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. I'd like you to step forward over here and peruse some of the faces from the past. You've walked past them many times. I don't think you've really looked at them. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. If you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in. Listen. You hear it? Okay, the great Robin Williams, everybody. Carpe diem. So how do we have a full life? How does that happen? Now, to be clear, we're not talking about full schedules, right? Big difference between a full schedule and a full life. You know, Jesus Christ said in John 10, 10, I come, my purpose, my purpose for coming is to give you life and to give it to the full. And the word that is used there, same word that is used for life all throughout the Gospel of John, 
starts in chapter 1, is sprinkled all the way through. It is the key word in the entire Gospel of John, zoe. Spiritual vitality is what it means in the Greek. Spiritual vitality. So how do we get that? How do we really live? How do we really, Any ideas? So what do we need to really live? Anybody throw out an idea? What do you need? You need what? Well, you need to really live and feel like it. Faith? Very good. What else? Anything? Family? Great. Anybody want to be carnal and say money? Huh? Huh? Adventure? Anybody? Laughter, dreams, okay? Food. Very good. Thank you. These are some great, some great ones. Uh, you know, I want to put up on the, uh, on the screen behind you the uh, cover for Time Magazine just a few weeks ago. You see what that says there? The time, 2045, the year man becomes immortal. You see the little thing going in the back of the guy's head right there? I've got it right here too. So technology is speeding up so quick, like exponentially. It is just running wild, speeding up so quick. They say 35 years from now, going to be immortal. So like if you think that you need to live forever in order to really live, hang in there for 35 more years. All right, we've got you covered. Harvard Medical School is already injecting mice with something, injecting them with something that's making them younger. It's causing their old age to go away, and the mice are getting younger, younger. Can you imagine that? Daniel chapter 12 hints at in the end days there'll be an explosion in knowledge and in travel. We're going to start a study this Easter on the book of Daniel because it hints at that. But if we were immortal, if you knew you were going to live forever, like if you could be 25, 25, that's not young enough. I just, that's just a few years ago for me. So if you could be 20, right, man, if you could be that like for the rest of your life, you could be stuck in that position. Would that be fullness of life? I was thinking about that as I was reading through this article and reading about all the stuff that's there. You know, if I could be 20 for the rest of my life, do they have something that they can inject into this world that will make all the earthquakes and the tsunamis go away? Do they have something they can inject into this world that will bring world peace? Like all the problems are going to be there. Maybe they can figure out a way that we can turn back the clocks. But is that what Christ is talking about when he talks about a fullness of life, full contact life? I think it's actually something very, very different, which is exactly what we want to talk about today. So Derek had already mentioned this a few moments ago. We're starting a uh, study very soon on this book that I have right here. We're going to start it next week. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Now, what, do you, what story from the life of Jesus Christ do you think that it starts with? Does anybody want to wager a guess? What story? Any kind of story you remember about walking on waters? Anybody? When, yeah, you can say it. I, I know. It's tired. We lost an hour's sleep. Jesus, walking on the water. It's contained in three of the different Gospels. We walk somewhere. I've heard that story ever since I was, you know, in Sunday school. But it wasn't until a few years ago. I had this idea in my head. Let me tell you what the idea I had in my head was. Is that Jesus Christ like walked on the water. Like they're out in the middle of the night. And the disciples, they're rowing away. And then here comes Jesus, you know. Everything is nice and calm and sacred and holy. And he walks up and I'm here. It's okay. And boom, he gets in the boat. You know what? That's not how it happened. We're told that Jesus Christ tells us, I want you to go to the other side of the lake. And I'll join you whenever. Okay? So, get, so they're rowing. They're out there. It's the middle of the night. It says this huge storm comes up. Now, this lake is big. 
which means it can generate some pretty good-sized waves. Anybody from Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, anybody in the house, the Great Lakes, right? We're talking about a good-sized lake with some big waves, and the wind is rolling. And so Jesus sees them, and it says this. Check this out. They had rowed three and a half miles. I'd never seen that before. They're out there. They're out there. And here comes Jesus. Now, did he wait for them to get three and a half miles so he could have the fun and the enjoyment of surfing those waves? Because I have a hard time reading through that and seeing that he's just like walking on some kind of just totally flat. The waves are rolling. I think he's surfing. I think he's having a good time. I think the person who created joy and laughter has a big smile on his face with joy and with laughter. Now he gets to the boat. Do you know what he did? Did he go up to them and say, hi, fellas, or he just jump in? You know what he did? This is what we're told in the Gospel of Mark. He walked right past them. Just like, like, he did, like they didn't even exist. He's just cruising on by, and they're like, you know. And finally, they scream out, ah, they thought it was a ghost. And then Peter says, Jesus, is that you? Is that you? I want you to read this first. Look at this. It's a, actually a very important thing because we're talking about being daring today and we need to qualify things a little bit. And so Peter sees them, Matthew 14, 20. It's on, the, it's on the screen. It's on the back of your blue handout. Of course, it's always in your Bible. And it says, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That's really important. Why? Because we're not just talking about running wild and being crazy. When we're talking about being daring today and having a full, full life, we're talking about, you know, being risky in the name of God, being daring, being brave, being bold, which we have to do because you read through the Bible, everybody who led this incredible life with God had to do that. But we're not talking about being foolish. I want to read to you from this book. On page number 16 in this book here, uh, John Ortberg writes something I think is really good. Ready? Here we go. Matthew is not glorifying risk-taking for its own sake. Jesus is not looking for bungee-jumping, hang-gliding, day-trading, tornado-chasing Pinto drivers. Who remembers the Pinto? (laughs) Why is that risky business? Why is the Pinto the risky business? Yeah, death trap. Exactly right. Water walking is not something Peter does for recreational purposes. This is not a story about extreme sports. It's about extreme discipleship. Now, here it comes. Here's the catch. This means that before Peter gets out of the boat, he had better make sure that Jesus thinks it's a good idea. Peter is looking for clarification. We're talking about risk-taking today. We're not talking about being crazy. We don't want you to go out to Great Falls and say, well, hey, I'll just jump out the falls today. We're talking about some clarification. So I wanted to make that really clear. We are going to study for the next few weeks a guy by the name of Elijah because this guy really lived. Now, if I can frame it real quick for you, there were three famous kings in Israel. The first king, most famous king, he was, he, he was famous. Well, he was famous for what? He was famous for being the first king. Who knows the first king of Israel? His name was Saul, right? He was famous because he was the first king. Who was the greatest king of Israel? What is his name? Second king. His name was David. And then the grandest king, the wisest king, who also ended terribly because of his pride. His name was Solomon. After Solomon, he was so foolish at the end of his life. His pride had consumed him so much at the end of his life. He led all of Israel into a civil war. So when he dies, then his son Rehoboam takes over. Rehoboam goes to the advisors. 
And the older advisors say, hey, look, tell them you're going to repeal all that stuff that your dad did. And he says, well, I don't like that. So he goes to a bunch of young advisors and says, tell them you're going to be much worse than your, your father ever was. And so that's what he does. And the whole country erupts in a civil war. Now, here's what happens. Because maybe some of you read through the Bible and say, what is going on? Israel, one king. What, now we've got two kings and northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Israel. What's happening here? The country divides. The nation divides north and south. And what happens up north? It becomes the nation of Israel, what we call it. Ten tribes go up north, they break off, and their capital is Samaria. In the south where Jerusalem is, it becomes where Judah and Benjamin, two tribes, break off Judah and Benjamin. So what happens up north in the northern kingdom here is there are seven kings. Every king is worse than the one before them. And we're just spiraling down, down, down until we finally get to a guy named Ahab. And can anybody tell me his wife's name? Jezebel. Ooh, you guys know your Bible. That's, that's awesome. Let's read it. First Kings 16, 30 to 32 to kind of set this thing up. It says, but Ahab did was evil in the, in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to live like Jeroboam, previous king, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ithbael of the Sidonians. Her father, Jezebel's dad, was a priest of Baal and the king of Sidon, S-I-D-O-N. And he began to worship Baal. Up until this point, Baal worship had only surrounded the Israelites. But when, when Ahab marries Jezebel, Baal worship is introduced to Israel itself. And they began to worship Baal. First, he built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. What is Baal? What, what's, what is God Baal? Baal is this fertility god that they, were, they had all kinds of detestable things that they would do to worship Baal, the fertility god. He was the god, in their view, that controlled the rain, that controlled the crops. And so what Ahab did is he created this really strong army. He had a huge, powerful defense, this army. And then he brought in this Baal worship. He said, you know, between the two, water to this day and has always been a problem in Israel. Water has always been a problem. So he's got his water solved because he's got his buddy Baal there that he's worshiping and he's leading everybody to worship Baal and he's got a strong military. So he figures he's set. This is what happens. Now, in walks a guy by the name of Elijah. Let's read 1 Kings 17.1. It's not on your blue sheet. You can bring a Bible and we can mark that all up because this is what we're going to, we're just going to focus on Elijah for a few weeks now. 17.1 says this. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Why do we go through all that? Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. You know why we had to qualify that over and over? Tishbite, Tishbe, Gilead? Because nobody knows where Tishbe is. It's an obscure little town that nobody's quite sure. So we had to qualify. It's in the region of Gilead. Ah, okay, I know where that is. I never heard of Tishbe before, right? So maybe some of you grew up in a town that nobody has ever heard before. So this is, this is Elijah. He's from this little tiny town. And here it comes. As the Lord lives, he goes to Ahab and he says this. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, who is he confronting here? He's confronting two different things at the same time. Ahab and Jezebel, and he's confronting Baal, right? Baal controls the rain, and he's just said it's not going to rain. So he's asking for a showdown. He wants to go toe-to-toe, man-to-man with Ahab and Ahab's God, Baal. 
So I've got a few things for us to consider here this morning. We want to live a full life. We want to live the kind of life, the full, full, full contact life that Jesus Christ is talking about. I've got three steps. There'll be more in the weeks to come. You might find yourself at one of these steps. I don't know. Maybe you're at step one, two, three. Maybe you're at four and five, and we'll talk about that. But step number one is this. First, we have to understand what Elijah's name means. And his name means this. The Lord is my God. That's what his name means. The Lord is my God. The Lord is my God. Step number one is this. Whatever it takes, make Jesus the Lord of your life. Whatever it takes, make Jesus the Lord of your life. This has nothing to do with salvation. We can say, Jesus, save my soul. Come into my heart. And we do that. And then we can live our lives. You know what I'm talking about? Any old way that we want to. Without Jesus being the Lord of our lives. We're the Lord of our lives. We're the Lord of our lives. Doing what we want. And, and we cringe at the thought of saying, hey, whatever it takes, I want you to be Lord. Can you do that? Some of you are cringing in your seat right now. I know I am when I think about that. I remember the first time I prayed that. Seriously, seriously. I got whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, don't stop. And you're the absolute Lord of my life. Fear all just ran all through my head the moment I prayed that. But we have to do that. This is what Elijah was. The Lord is my God, Jesus, whatever it takes. Jesus, I'm giving you permission to take away all the Christian fluff out of my life, to take away and put an end to shell Christianity and to replace it with a genuine relationship with you. I do not want to settle for anything less than you being absolute Lord. That's a bold decision. That's a bold and daring prayer. That's not something we take. You know what? If you pray that seriously before God, you know what God does? He takes you very seriously. And if you ever want to know, does God really exist? You get down on your knees and you say, Almighty God, I don't care what it takes. You be the Lord of my life. And then you just get yourself out a book and you write down what happens to you over the next year and two years and three years and see if some serious stuff doesn't start taking place in your life because God takes it seriously. I remember when I did it, I had no idea that he was going to take me. I wish he didn't take me so seriously, but he did. I was just kidding around, but he thought, let's go for it. And so, bam, okay, this is what happens. But this is how we find real living. And this is what Elijah does. This is who he is. This is his name. Names mean something in the Bible. And this is who he is. The Lord is my God. And so he confronts. God says, okay, you've got to go and confront Ahab. I want you to go confront the king in his palace with Jezebel. And I want you to tell him I'm turning off the waterworks. He thinks Baal is in charge of the water. Well, I've got news for him. I'm greater than Baal is. And so he confronts him. Some of us in this room, we're at step number one. We're at step number one, God being the Lord of our lives. And God is saying, you know what? You need to confront somebody in your life. You need to finally confront them. You need to confront them about something. There's something going wrong, and it's impacting your life. You're watching them impact other people's lives, and you're afraid. Do you know what was happening? Jezebel was putting to death everybody that was a follower of God, like killing, just, kill, just killing them all off. So this is, this is a bold, daring decision. And some of us, we just need to gut it up, and we need to confront somebody. We need to say, you know what? You've gone this far. You can't go any farther. This is not right. It's not right. But all of us in this room probably need to confront ourselves. We need to confront decisions that we are making ourselves. Or we need to confront our own apathy, our own unforgiveness, our own whatever, fill in the blank over and over and over again. 
a bold confrontation because the Lord is your God and you can't just keep going on. It can't be business as usual. You can't sweep it under the rug because the Lord is your God and you have to deal with it. And that's bold and that's daring, but you can't just keep living life that way if you wanted a life to the full. And so we see this is exactly this is exactly what Elijah does. Now, what happens when you pray that kind of prayer? I don't know what's going to happen for you. Try it and find out. Try it and find out. For Elijah, it started a brand new journey for him, without a doubt, a whole brand new journey. Let's read it. So he does it. The Lord, his God, he confronts Ahab. Now, what was going through? I wonder what he was thinking. What's going to happen to me once I confront Ahab like this? Verse number two. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. The ravens, of all things. Is that a little odd? Ravens, you know, ravens are scavengers. They're not suppliers of food. They scavenge food, right? They don't supply anybody a meal. They see scraps, they pick it up, they eat it. Ravens were detestable to the Israelites because they were unclean birds. Nobody wanted anything to do with a raven. And he says, these ravens, they're going to come and feed you. Well, that's a very unlikely source to get a meal from. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes when you're here, you know, at this step, you'll find a meal from a very unlikely source. Verse number five. So he did what the Lord had told him. And he went to Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So let's take a look at this word, cherith, because words matter. Elijah matters. The Lord is my God, cherith. What does cherith mean? Here's what it means. It means to cut down, to cut down, like to cut down to size. Step number two, let God cut you down to size. Now, I'd like you, if you're filling in the blanks, to take your little pencil or pen or whatever and circle the word God. Let God cut you down to size. Not somebody else. Not your own self. Don't try to go out looking to, you know, make some kind of big sacrifice. You know, don't make, generate something to happen. There was a whole ascetic movement throughout church history. People would, like, brutalize themselves foolishly. God's not asking for that. You're not asking for that at all. People walk down the street, they see a big thorn bush, and they're like, here, I can be holy. I'll jump into the thorn bush. We're not talking about that. That's kind of, that's goofy. That's goofy, okay? What we're talking here is let God cut you down to side. That's what the name Cherith means. What's also is really interesting here is the commands come one step at a time. So God says, I want you to go and talk to Ahab in the palace. Once that mission is complete, the next command comes, go to Cherith. Did you hear that? So some of us, we're here at step number two. We're in Cherith, and we're wondering, why am I living one day at a time? What is God's will for me? How come I can't get out of here at Cherith? Here's the, here's the thing that you need to do, and I have done so many times. You need to go back in your mind and figure out, what was the last command God gave me? Have I completed that mission? He's not giving me another command until I take care of the first one. Did that make sense? So the command was, go to talk to Ahab. If he never did it, he wasn't getting command number two about going to Cherith. He had to do one completed and now we're going on to number two and the thing is is in cherith it's a day-by-day existence listen here's the good news we don't live at cherith forever elijah we're going to get him out of cherith before we're done here today all right he's going to leave the cut down phase of his life at cherith his pride is cut down 
But we don't have to stay there forever. Eventually, we can exit that and move on to that. But when you're there, it's very daily. So here comes the ravens, and they're feeding him on a daily basis. Now, do you think they're setting for him? They think all these ravens are coming, and they're putting a full meal out. They've got the tablecloth there, and they've got the plate and the utensils, and they're putting a leg of lamb or chicken or it wouldn't be pork. But, you know, it'd be, you know what I'm saying? Do you think that's what? No. I mean, this meal was, I mean, come on, ravens. Like if a bird came and dropped off a bunch of food on your plate, are you going to eat it? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying here? This is day by day. Mr. Food doesn't look the best, right? But there's a huge famine land, and he's eating scrap by scrap. Here's the thing about the daily. Where does daily come in? Do you ever remember another time when it says daily? Give us this day. What kind of bread? Daily bread. Thank goodness we don't have to stay in Cherith forever. But when you are in Cherith, it's a daily bread. It's a daily bread. I don't like daily bread. I can't stand daily bread, actually. You know, because when it's daily bread for me and God, it humbles me and it makes me be dependent upon God on a daily basis. And I'd rather be independent. That's just my human nature. So it's da- I, 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 I like monthly bread or annual bread or, year, you know, decade bread, right? That, because I can, and then I can come back to God after a decade and say, oh, remember me? I need some help again. How about some more bread? Give me another decade worth and we're moving on. But it shareth, it's a daily existence, existing off of the bread that they're bringing from these detestable birds. And now, what happens? We're told in verse number seven, the brook, the brook that he's supposed to drink out of dries up. It's bad enough that he has to eat from the ravens on a daily basis. It's bad enough that he's in Cherith where his pride is being cut down. It's bad enough that Cherith is this lonely place, out-of-the-way place, right? He's already from Tishbe. We don't even know where the heck that is. And now he's in Cherith. Man, does it get... And now the brook dries up. Why did the brook dry up, everybody? Who has the million-dollar answer on why the brook dries up? Anybody? It's a clear answer. Because what? New boat rain. So it's an answer to whose prayers? Elijah. Hey, everybody. Sometimes we're like, we get all frustrated. Things are going wrong in our life or whatever. And then we realize, oh my gosh, this is an answer to my own prayer. Makes you a little nervous about praying. Okay. What do you think Elijah was thinking to himself when God said, Ahab, I want you to go confront the king. I mean, Elijah, what? I want you to go confront Ahab confront Jezebel, I want you to go toe-to-toe and tell them there'll be no rain because of all your foolishness with Baal. What do you think he was thinking when God sent this guy who we have no genealogy on, right? The Israelites are huge into genealogy. Comes out of nowhere, comes out of a town from nowhere, and God says, boom, go to the palace. They're putting to death all God's people. I want you to go get it right up in his face and tell him there'll be no rain, buddy. At my word, I'm shutting the skies down. Now, what do you think he was thinking, this guy from nowhere? Do you think that possibly he was thinking, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this is my time to shine. I'm going to take the bull by the horns right here. I'm going to tell this guy. I'm going to be in the spotlight. I'm going to have all of Israel is going to be looking at me. I'm going to have the stage. I am going to be it. Don't you think he was thinking that? Because the next thing that happens is God sends him to chariot to cut his pride down. Don't you think that maybe he was thinking bright lights, big city? Oh, man, I am going to be who? I am going to be the man. And there's nothing more that any man wants in this room than to be the man, right? They'll all tell you no, but the same thing in every guy's heart. We want to be the man. And he wanted to be the man. And so God says, okay, now I want you to go hide yourself because I want to cut you down. 
towards the end of my junior year in Bible college, a very strange thing, very, very strange thing happened to me. God began to deal with me about I was going to leave Bible college. Like before, I was, I'm one year away from graduating Bible college. One year away. God begins to deal with me. God, unbeknownst to me, I didn't say anything to Krista, my wife. God begins to deal with her. And through an incredible, incredible events, God just makes it so clear that we are to leave. Before I complete my last year, it was the dumbest thing that we could have ever done. But God made it so clear that we were supposed to leave. And I was going to go to a church to be an associate youth pastor. It was bizarre. I'm one year away from graduating. But it was so clear, so many signs. So we go. And I get there, and I'm still wondering, you know, God, you must have some really big plans in store. I mean, if you took me out of college and you lined all this up, I mean, whoa. I mean, I guess, I guess the world couldn't wait. You know, world couldn't wait. Couldn't wait any longer. Let's go. And I get there, and I realize a little bit about why I'm there. I was only there about, I remember I'd been there for like one week at this church. And there was a minister there who was the head of this church. And he was 40 years my senior. He was 60 years old. Much older, much wiser than me. And he was in the middle of making a decision that was going to impact that entire church and all the ministry. And he was ready to go, and he was excited, and the church was excited, and God put it on my heart. That decision was a bad decision. It was a really bad decision. I thought, oh, boy. And then God put it on my heart, you've got to tell him. And I thought, oh, boy, really? I've got to confront him? Now, he wasn't going to put me to death like Ahab would put Elijah. I mean, the stakes weren't quite as high. But I felt, so you know what I did? I didn't say a word to him. I didn't say a word to him until one day God orchestrated over lunch that he asked me. And then here it comes, and I told him. You know what was in my mind? My mind was if I spoke up and I said, you know, really what God was saying in that moment about all this stuff, that God would say, man, way to go. And everybody else in the church come, way to go, John. We're just going to give the pulpit to you, man. This was actually, you, you are the man. You're the man. Give me the spotlight. You know what happened? You know what happened? A few weeks later, he stormed in my office and he fired me. You know why? Because I needed to go to Cherith. Because that's the next stop. That's the next stop in becoming a man or a woman of God. That's the next stop in living a full life. Elijah had to go to Cherith because he had to have something cut. I want to read you this quote from A.W. Tozer. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you have an old writer. A lot of reality, biblical reality here in this quote. He says this. It is doubtful that God can use any man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, let's think about Moses. Let's think about Joseph. Let's think about Abraham. Let's think about Esther. Let's think about Ruth. On and on the list goes. Isn't that so true? Before God can use us greatly, there's always a Cherith experience that we go through. Now, the cool thing is, I want to, just in case you're at Cherith right now, just in case you're at this step, step number two, and you're in Cherith, the important thing to remember is this. God said, Elijah, go to Cherith and stay there until I tell you to go. Don't leave. If you're there at this step, if you're at that step, please do not run away. You're going you're gonna to forfeit everything. Don't leave until God says it's time to go. Now, let's get, let's get him out of Cherith because I think he's done enough time there. All right, here we go. Uh, I want to read you verses 7 to 12. <laughs> hey, it only gets better for this guy. Sometime later, the brook dried up, which we already talked about, because there had been no rain in the land, according to his prayers. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go to at once, at once go to Zarephath of Sidon, and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. 
Now, we're going to talk about why that's so ironic in just a second. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? Now, the guy is thirsty. It's 100 miles away from Cherith to Zarephath through the desert. And by the way, it hasn't rained in years. So he's like dying of thirst when he gets there. And he's been told some widow is going to take care of him. So he sees a widow, and he doesn't know who it is. I mean, he doesn't know which widow it is. They're all over town. And he says, hey. Would you give me a drink? And if she says yes, he figures, okay, she must be the right one. So that's exactly what he does. And as she was going, he calls to her again, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Man, he's getting pushy. And she says, as surely, now here's his supplier, right? The raven supplied him. Now here's his next food supplier. Check out what she, this is great. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And die. That's your next supplier. Elijah, first we're going to feed you with ravens, the very birds that you hate and detest. They're going to give you these nasty meals every day. And then we're going to send you to a very poor widow. Why was she a poor widow? Because every widow in that day was poor. Send, and she's getting ready, her and her son, to eat their last meal and they're going to die. And you know what? She's your next supplier. Isn't this awesome? That's like applying for a job on the Titanic the day it hit the iceberg. Right? You want a job at Enron? We got a bunch of jobs at Enron for you. Come on. Just, you know, the line is just, it's warming up. Come on right up. So this, this is what happens to him. Zarephath. What does it mean? The furnace. It means the furnace. And step number three is this. Don't run from the fire. Don't run from the fire. God puts Elijah's life on the fire. First, first thing we see, Elijah, the Lord is my God. I'll settle for nothing else. God be the Lord of my life. That's the only thing I want. Step number two, you've got to go to Cherith. You've got to allow God to cut it down. Cut, and that's what happens. His pride's got Step number three, he puts Elijah on the fire. Why do we put things on a fire? To burn out all the impurities. And God raises up all the impurities in Elijah's life. So what does he do? Well, what do we know about where he's going? Sidon. I said at the beginning of the message, maybe some of you were paying attention and listened to what I said, okay? Sidon. Who is from Sidon? Who, what very important person in this whole story is from Sidon? Anybody remember? Jezebel. Her dad is king there. It is the center of Baal worship. Elijah is all frothing at the mouth with anger, wanting to confront Baal and all of his followers, right? Anger, detestable practices. This is wicked. It's wrong. And God says, I'm going to send you to a woman in the center of Baal worship. And then I want you to stay with her because she's going to supply your needs. You know what's fascinating, everybody? God supplies us when we're in these steps of Cherith and Zarephath. God supplies our needs in the most unlikely ways. And God burns out impurities from our lives. The most unlikely. God is going to teach Elijah to love as God loves. God's going to teach Elijah to see this woman and her son and to see them through the eyes of God rather than his judgmental prejudice eyes. At Cherith, the pride was cut down, right? Here at Zarephath, the prejudice is cut down. He's going to minister to this woman, a woman who God loves. I've had so many people tell me that when they're going through a Zarephath experience, they'll say, you know what? People came along my path who had a lifestyle completely unlike mine, and they ministered to me like nobody else could at that time of my life. You have to be open. You have to begin to learn to love and to see people as God loves. Elijah desperately needed this situation. Before he goes toe-to-toe, toe-to-toe with Baal, 
and Ahab and the rest of the people, he needed to have these impurities burned out of his life. Okay. As you look through the Bible, everybody, what we see very clearly here is that people who live these full lives, like these on-fire full life in the eyes of God, right? They lived very bold and daring lives. It was a clear risk, like Peter. It wasn't a crazy or foolish risk, but they lived these lives. The Lord was their God. How about you? Is the Lord your God? Are you prepared, am I prepared, to pray a very daring and bold prayer? How does the Lord become your God? It's when you pray to God, God, I'll settle for nothing else. Can you do that today? Are you willing to take that kind of risk today? Because if you pray it and you mean it, he's going to take you seriously and things are going to start to change in your life. Next thing you know, you're going to find yourself at Cherith and thank God you don't have to stay all day there. Not for the rest of your life. And then you're going to go to Zarephath. God is going to begin to move and work your life. Now, what's the end of all this, everybody? We're going to get to the end of the story soon. But if I can give you just a glimpse. A glimpse is, is that Elijah ends in victory. In victory. After getting his pride cut down and having his prejudice cut down and being on the fire, it leads to a glorious end. We're told that Elijah goes to heaven in a fiery chariot. We're told that Elijah goes toe-to-toe with the 450 prophets of Baal, and he has this huge victory. That's not all. Elijah, to this day, in a traditional Jewish household, when they celebrate the Passover meal, they set a, set a place, a fifth cup for who? That nobody touches. Who's it for? It's for Elijah. And they open the front door to the house. This guy, the prophet, that we don't even have a genealogy on, he's from nowhere. They open the front door because they're hoping and praying that he'll walk through it. When Jesus Christ was transfigured on the mountain, who came and visited him? Moses and Elijah. Everybody, when we're going through these steps, steps one, two, and three today, this is like NFL training camp, right? If NFL training camp ever happens again. It's like NFL training camp. It's not pretty, but it's the only way to victory. It's the only way to victory. There's, there's no other way, biblically speaking. There is no other way to victory. This is it. And if you're hungry, if you're hungry this morning for all God has to offer, if you're hungry for genuine life, if you're done just kind of having a little taste of it here and there, but you want all of the life that God offers us and to live to the full, here are the biblical steps to experiencing that. It won't be easy. But when the day comes and you are pushing up daisies, as Robin Williams says, you will know that you lived a life full contact, all, all full on for God Almighty. And it'll be a wonderful home going for you. Our prayer team is going to be over on that wall. If you're at step one, two, or three, I can't encourage you so much. Please go and visit them because we need the prayers of people around us when we're in those steps Definitely. And I encourage, even as we sing the final song, go and visit them. Have somebody pray with you. It's important. If you have never received Jesus Christ, you, say, you never made that bold risk and jumped across that line and said, Jesus, I want you to be the Savior of my life. Do that today. Our prayer team would love to pray with you. Okay? Let me pray. We're going to sing, and then we're going to go. Heavenly Father, thank you for everybody in this room. God, all of us are trying to make a decision. We're trying to make a decision, Lord, about which way we go. Are we going to fully trust you and turn our lives over to you, God? 
Maybe some of us are at step number two and we're at Cherith right now and you're cutting our pride down and we want to just say, man, I've had enough of this and bail. Or maybe we're at Zarephath and you're burning a bunch of stuff at us and we want to get out of there too. Lord, help us to stick with it so that, God, all that you have purposed in your heart for each person here today, sitting here today, would be realized for your honor and glory. God, we don't want to settle for halfway. We want everything that you have to offer. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.